Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thank you for tuning in this week. I've been on the road for a couple of weeks here. So we have a special episode from a Ask Me Anything live Q&A that we did at Catalina Foothills Church in Tucson, Arizona. Wonderful church um, that uh, hosted a big pro-life event. Um, and I gave a lecture that we aired recently called Everything Wrong With Being Pro-Choice, The Five Bad Ways That Pro-Choice Advocates Argue For Abortion. And so we aired that recently for you guys to go through the five major flaws of every pro-choice argument so you're aware of it and know the fatal flaws in the reasoning and how to respond. Well, the same church did in our Q&A after that lecture as well. And so we wanted to air this Q&A for you because uh, we really covered anything and everything. I think it'll be really helpful for you. A lot of common questions, uh, common concerns, and I think it'll bring a lot of clarity to you uh, in your life, for your children, your school, your church, your community of faith. Um, so you can advocate for life, defend life, be an ambassador for the unborn uh, at a moment where we need courageous, articulate pro-life individuals more so than any other time as we're facing the most pro-abortion political administration in American history. So um, give us a show rating and review. Let us know what you think. It really helps us reach more people. We want to uh, saturate the digital marketplace with good pro-life ideas to change minds, change hearts, and save lives. Leave us a rating and review. Let us know what you think and enjoy this live Q&A from Catalina Foothills Church. Thanks so much. We'll see you soon. Hi. Hi there. Oh, this is loud. What's um, your name? Okay, so it's going to take me a minute to... My name is Melanie. Melanie. Um, it's going to take me a minute to ask my question. No worries. Um, so I'm, I'm very pro-life, and I have watched many YouTube videos similar to the talk you gave tonight. I think in my experience, when I talk to people about abortion, um, they're usually not looking for a rational conversation so, like, your attack versus argue point was really interesting to me. Um, but I also know that oftentimes when people attack, there's a deeper emotional hurt that's present. Um, so, for example, looking at the point you made about women who say, you're a man, you can't have a say on this. I completely agree with you. Um, but at the same time, I can acknowledge that there are women who probably have had men tell them what to do with their bodies in, in work settings in order to get promotions or other things like that. Um, and having that gut response, I can understand. Um, the other issue that comes up a lot for me is people who kind of complain about the foster care system. Again, this is logically a really easy thing for me to refute, to say just because there aren't plentiful resources does not mean you kill the child. In okay. the same way, I imagine you would say, would you kill the born child in the foster care system? Right. However, I can also understand that Peace Pulha have worked closely in the foster care system, are really mourning the injustice and the fact that it's really bad and needs a lot of work. So I'm wondering when it's not like political debate and a setting for discourse, how do you go about those aspects of the conversation? Yeah, totally. So many individuals who are very feisty and activist in their approach to defending abortion in many circumstances will have been wounded by abortion they will have played a role in the death of their child. And I, I speak very clearly in moral terms on this issue. I will say things like, you scheduled the death of your offspring. I think we need to talk like that because that reflects reality. And while that might put a moral burden on a man or woman who played a role in an abortion, 
coming to terms with what they did is actually the very thing they need in order to experience healing, right? If King David had just pretended like Bathsheba's husband wasn't really a full person, <laughs> he wouldn't have really come to full repentance and healing until he, he understood what he did. So I think we need to speak very clearly about that. Um, so we shouldn't, we shouldn't try to go out of our way to speak in euphemisms to spare men and women hurt because that will actually spare them healing. But we do need to recognize that many of the people we talk with will have been wounded, either through sexual abuse or through an abortion. And that may be the reason why they're so activist in their approach to defending abortion is because they have to convince themselves that what they did was actually just reproductive health care in order to live with themselves, in order, in order to convince themselves that it wasn't that big of a deal with what they actually did. So especially as Christians, that should cause us to approach this conversation with grace and with truth, to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. But for someone who would say what you said, just to use your language, what you said about, well, you know, men have told me this before about what to do with my body. And, and I was coerced into situations to perform in such a way in order to advance career-wise. Well, the assumption is that abortion is the same as that. Of course, that's a, a faulty assumption because the body in your body is not your body. So it always goes back to that same fundamental question, what is the unborn? So even for a broken man or woman or someone who's been wounded by abortion, who is not acknowledging the reality of what they've done, the debate is the same. The debate is, well, what is the unborn? When does human life begin? And if you ask most pro-choicers if they support third trimester abortions or nine-month abortions, like a mom was going to choose life and she just stated through nine months and then decided to get an abortion, most pro-choicers go, ew. Like most pro-choicers don't support third trimester abortions. In fact, a 2019 Gallup poll said that only 13% of the American public supports late trimester abortions. I mean, 13% is not a lot. Um, so we recognize that that child is somehow human and deserving of dignity the more it gets developed. So that's a strategic way that you can approach that conversation with someone who's defending it very uh, vehemently or passionately is by focusing on third trimester abortions and seeing if they're uncomfortable with that and you can get them to reject that, then ask them then at what point in that developmental process did the child get right to life? Did the child get dignity? And the only reasonable answer is conception because that's when human life begins. In terms of strategies with individuals who only are appealing to emotion and they don't really care about the facts that you're providing, I think it's always helpful to utilize the Socratic method. The Socratic method is just the art of asking good questions. What do you mean by that? Why do you believe that? Would be the two most helpful questions you can ask in a conversation on abortion. What do you mean by reproductive health care? What do you mean by feminism? My understanding of feminism is that women are valuable, so unborn women should not be killed on the altar of feminism. But by asking people what they mean by that, you dignify the other person because you show that you're interested in what they believe and what they have to say. So then that diffuses an otherwise maybe emotionally charged debate because the pro-choice individual recognizes, oh, this person is asking a lot about what I believe. And don't ask it just so that you can position yourself to destroy them. Ask it because you actually care what they think. And that dignifies the other person. And by the way, all of our favorite topic is moi. So you let the other person talk about themselves and that tends to be our favorite topic. Then you start asking them, why do you believe that? Once they've told you what they believe, you're better positioned to respond because you've gotten more information. Then you ask them, why do you believe that the only way women can have equal rights is if they can arrange the death of preborn women? Why do you believe that? And force them to defend their beliefs because most people don't actually know why they believe what they believe. And when they're forced to defend it, they usually just go back to parroting talking points that they've heard, but can't actually offer an argument as to why they believe what they believe. And you can do that in a very winsome and gracious way. Does that help at all? Good. Hey, Hi brother, there. what's your name? I'm Steve Phillips. Steve, awesome. Thank you so much for being here. 
So as a church, what are we doing wrong? And I'll bring up the LGBTQ uh, agenda. It is a very much an agenda. What would you say the percentage of population is truly LGBTQ? Less than 5%? Uh, so yeah, it's a few years ago it was like one or two, and now exactly. it's now it's like between six and eight. And the reason I bring that up is, look, if you turn on the TV, you look at our current administration, you would think that more than half our population. So you brought up some very interesting, you know, facts. Less than thirteen percent support. So if our voice, if we truly believe, if we are the silent majority, what are we doing wrong? Why aren't we the majority, and why? Are we not being more successful than two percent of the population? Right. Yeah. And it. it anyway. Yeah. Great question, Steve. So the church in America for a long time has created an idol out of not being political. It's very interesting. Churches and Christians and pastors who say uh, we just preach the gospel. We're not a political church, and they they then accuse individuals who want to engage in the political sphere to advance righteousness as creating an idol out of politics. Can that happen? Yes, because the heart is an idol factory. The heart creates idols out of everything. So yes, Christians could create an idol out of politics. But in the vast majority of times, and in my experience speaking in churches all across the country, the Christians, uh, the, the, the individuals who love Jesus with all their heart and love this country and want to defend the preborn are engaging in politics in order to restrain evil and promote righteousness insofar as we can given current political realities. And that starts with the right to life. So yes, of course, life should be a single issue voting issue because if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. The reason why I say all that is it's very interesting that the people who critique us of making an idol out of politics, they're usually the ones who actually made an idol out of not being political. They care so much about protecting their witness that they're willing to sacrifice savable babies on the altar of their witness. And I had my friends tell me two days before the election, right before I was preaching into church in actually where I live now at Godspeak Calvary Chapel in Thousand Oaks, I was texting my friends from Westmont that were like-minded when we graduated and in Increasingly, we've become less and less like-minded over the last few years. And my, one of my best friends said, Seth, I just can't pull the trigger for Trump because I, I don't want to ruin my witness. I care so much about my witness that if I vote for Trump and my leftist friends learn that I voted for Trump, they'll say, oh, you're one of those Christians? I hate you, and I hate any God that you espouse. Many Christians defended political neutrality in 2020 under that defense my witness. Well, if a witness promises to tell the truth and God's people can't even speak the truth about life in the womb, then I don't know what God you're a witness for. And there's also many pagans who hate the church of Christ and hate Christians and who have no respect for the bride of Christ because they say that we don't believe what we actually believe. They say we're not consistent. Here's what I mean by that. They say, hey, Christian, if you actually believed what you tell me you believe, namely that you worship a fetus, that you worship a prenatal God who entered human history in a womb that he once knit together. If you believed that, that your God took on fetus flesh and dwelled in a womb, and that every human being is created in the image of the prenatal God that you worship, then you would view abortion as genocide. And you would be the biggest Republican hack I know because you would recognize that that's the only political party that provides any reasonable opportunity to protect the preborn.
Many pagans say that to Christians. They say, I have no respect for those, those hypocritical cowards. Because if, if they say what they believe they, if they believe what they say, that abortion is genocide, they would treat it like genocide. And they would never say, I can't vote because of my witness, because he just tweets mean things. They would look past the personal sins of the president in order to ensure that a politician who respects the first and most fundamental of all rights dwells in positions of political power. So the very people who say, you can't do that because of your witness, are not concerned on how their witness has been harmed by not advocating for the preborn. So I think that's one of the mistakes of the church is that we have made an idol out of not being political. And we've forgotten that this country was founded by activist preachers who wanted to put their faith into the public square. George Whitefield's preaching tour in the colonies right before the revolution, many historians believe primed the colonies for revolution because George Whitefield started explaining these theological ideas of liberty and whose idea liberty is and that God wants you to have liberty because where the spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty and he wants you to be able to freely worship him and that's why he had Moses lead the people out of Egypt so that, what? His people could worship him freely. George Whitefield starts explaining these ideas and the colonies go, wow, we should start our own country. We should rebel and make these sacrosanct inalienable rights reflective in our founding documents to protect them forever. Those were activist preachers. That was the idea of Christians. Now, were all of our founders born again? No, not all of them were born again, but many of them were. And they wanted to be faithful to Christ in all spheres. They didn't adopt what we adopt today, which is a compartmentalized Christianity. They adopted a comprehensive Christianity. So to answer your question, the reason why this has continued, why abortion has continued and every other natural right that flows from the right to life has continued deteriorating is because the bride of Christ and churches have abandoned their role in the public square. And we have allowed pagans who are more passionate to do for evil than we are to do for good to fill in institutions that are built on self-government, which means we all have the freedom and ability to engage with self-government and American institutions to get individuals elected who will respect their only job description, which is to protect the life, liberty, and property of American citizens, and that starts with our pre-born neighbors. Francis Schaeffer once said that every abortion clinic ought to have a sign-out front that says, open with the permission of the Church of Jesus Christ. And that strikes true because like the Levi in the priest in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we walk by on the other side of the road where we know bleeding victims are being created, and we drive by these death centers on our way to work and on our way to church, and we tacitly allow it because we say we're not political. We fear that label so much that we're willing to sacrifice savable image bearers of God on the altar of our witness, our credibility, and our character. And if anything is an idol, it's certainly that. That would be my answer. Uh. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> totally. Awesome. What's your name, brother? Um, my name is Steve Arden. Steve. Steve. Great to meet you. Um, thank you. Likewise. <clears throat> um, my question is very similar. You kind of answered a lot of it. Um, it's just it's kind of disheartening that our president and our vice president they call themselves Catholic and. <laughs> Persons of faith, you know, and and you addressed about what's going on in in churches and that they're, you know, not not going to take a side politically. But earlier on, you mentioned that you were were seeing because you go do speak you do speak to a lot of Protestants and Catholics, and you mentioned early on when and you were speaking tonight about 
you were seeing some encouraging signs the last few months. Can you expand on that? Yeah, yeah, bit? absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, Joe Biden is not a practicing Catholic, um, and he's actually been denied the Eucharist um, by at least one priest um, because of his heresy. Um, and he, he ought to be excommunicated by the Catholic Church. And that should have happened, by the way, probably 40 years ago. Um, because he's been in American politics, um, I think, since barely he was old enough to drink. Like, shortly after he was old enough to drink, he's been in American politics. Um, and he's been pro-abortion that whole time. So, anyways, I, I'm a Protestant. I, I, I love my Catholic brothers and sisters because we're on, we're shoulder to shoulder on the front lines of this fight. Uh, however, the Catholic Church ought to have excommunicated him a long time ago. Uh, practicing Catholic, my goodness. Um, in regards to what I believe God's doing in the country right now, it's interesting. I, I think it, it took being told that we didn't have the liberty to worship our God <laughs> for the church to go, oh my goodness, I, I think we abandoned the political battle and then leftist pagans who hate God and hate me filled in those institutions and advocated for pagan religion um, all the while we were inside our churches saying, hallelujah, Jesus. Uh, and now we're reaping the consequences of abdicating the political sphere, the public square, putting our faith into every sphere. Um, and and it, uh, we, that really is our fault. We're reaping those consequences. Um, at, at this point, the church is not starting 501c4s in order to get God-fearing men and women elected or supporting God-fearing men and women to get elected. Um, we are ultimately just reaping our own destruction. As long as we accept this premise that God doesn't want us to be political, then, then, then people who are not f afraid of partisan labels will continue filling in American institutions to destroy natural rights and put a middle finger to the source of our rights, uh, God, from who these rights come. But I think it took being told that you don't even have the liberty to worship anymore for some churches to go, oh, wake up call. All right, what did you see happen in 2020? You saw American politicians, pretty much all on one side of the political aisle, the Democratic Party, let's just say their name, who denied the natural right to property to American citizens uh, against the theft, looting, and burning of people who don't think America is exceptional but evil. Oh, why, why didn't they protect our natural right to property? I wonder why. You saw the same politicians, namely governors and mayors, who refused to protect your natural rights to liberty, to run your businesses in accordance with your best judgment, to gather where you choose, to hug one another, to sing. My governor, Gavin Newsom, says no singing in churches. But if you scream America sucks in the streets of L.A., and you share a champagne bottle with Bill de Blasio in New York City celebrating the election of Joe Biden, that's fine. That's not a public health crisis. Right, don't you know COVID-19, it's a woke virus. It only targets conservatives and religious Christians. And so we wondered why our natural right to liberty and property wasn't being respected by politicians who promised to respect those rights. I wonder why. Maybe because 48 years ago, they disrespected and refused to protect the natural right to life. And if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. A government that says an entire class of human beings can be denied the right to life and murdered and you have to fund it, and you have to call it reproductive justice, cannot be trusted to protect any other right that flows from that first and most important of all rights. So I think it took that for many Christians to start waking up. I don't know the mind of God. I don't know what he's up to. I just know that I went from speaking primarily in schools with the occasional church to speaking in more churches in the last six months than I had in the previous six years of my speaking career. So I think God is up to something. And that's why I, I love that line from Winston Churchill when he said uh, that when great forces are on the move in the world, we learn that we're spirits and not animals. And that something is going on in space and time and beyond space and time, which whether we like it or not, spells duty. 
Great forces are on the move in the world once again, maybe more so than any other time in my lifetime. And I think God is using that to wake up the Church of Christ. In my home state of California, it's almost axiomatic at this point to say that what happens in California doesn't stay in California. And usually that's always been applied as it pertains to evil. But I think that it can also be applied as it pertains to righteousness. If God's people wake up and be start contending in the public square, then what happens in California for righteousness won't stay in California for righteousness and will spread everywhere else as well. And so I'm encouraged by what I see happening, at least in my home state and in many states across the country, is people are defying tyranny by obedience to God. And I think we all need to play a role in what's happening because I think this might be the fetal stages of another revival in this country. Yes. Hi. Thanks for coming. Yeah. You mentioned Stephen Douglas and the federal argument, federalist argument against right. slavery. Um, if Roe v. Wade were to be overturned, and I think it's getting to the point where we might be seeing that as a possibility in the not too distant future, we would have a federalist it would go back uh, to the state of abortion. Correct. So in California, it'd be legal all the way up to and probably up to three, four years old. That's right. In Alabama, it'd be, it'd be illegal. Is this a state that, as a pro-life movement, we should advocate for, or should we, or should we change our strategy? Right. So if we overturn Roe versus Wade, that would be a great success. However, if a pro-life individual is only thinking up to that point, I would contend that they're failing because that's not acceptable. Just like it was not acceptable for Abraham Lincoln, the abolitionist, to say, let's just let each state decide. <laughs> whether to purchase image bearers of God and then whip them like cattle. Uh, no, that's not acceptable. You can't argue from a libertarian position or a federalist position that, that each state should be able to determine what natural rights they deny to their citizens. No, 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 no. That's why our founding document said we hold these truths to be self-evident that all human beings are uh, endowed by their creator with these inalienable rights. And so once you uh, deny American citizens their natural rights, then there is actually a constitutional argument for the federal government to step in and say you actually can't do that. And, and in the same way, we would never accept a, a state today, you know, re-enshrining segregation. Uh, of course, except the modern left who wants to do that against white people and Asian people in the name of anti-racism. But again, that's a lecture for another time. We would never accept that. Um, so neither should we on the issue of abortion, because in each case, these are human beings who differ from one another according to their size and their level of development, but are still intrinsically valuable human beings because they have a human nature. So if and when we succeed in overturning Roe versus Wade, that, the battle's actually just begun. The true justice would be banning abortion at a federal level in all 50 states. Um, and, and that needs to be the goals of the pro-life movement, or else we're just not being morally consistent with our position. Uh, I got one quick one over here. Yeah. Uh, can you speak back to, she had a quick question when you started, but the, the quality of life post, if the, they don't go through with the abortion, um, as an argument, uh, like out of the foster homes or, you know, poor family life, whatever it ends on. Can you speak to that? You mean so like if abortion's made illegal, all, a lot of these babies will be born into horrific circumstances? Correct. Right, right, right. Yeah, this is the sort of the Freakonomics argument that was made in support of abortion, which is like, abortion helps lower crime, which, which basically means, um, yeah, because abortion disproportionately happens in minority communities, which uh, perform a disproportionate amount of crime, let's just murder them before they commit crimes, because we know that they tend to commit more crimes in minority communities, and then we'll say we're woke and we're social justice warriors. Uh, right, I mean, that's pretty sick. <laughs> it's like saying, like, I think that you'll grow up to be a criminal. I'm not sure. Um, and, of course, this always comes from Democrats, right, the, the party of equality and anti-racism. Give me a break. So we'll just murder you in the womb 
um, because we're racist and we assume that all black people and minority communities will disproportionately commit crimes in order to help curb crime. <laughs> and the same thing applies with other quality of life issues, right? They'll say, well, many women who obtain abortions are doing so because they can't afford another baby. Their boyfriend is a degenerate. Their husband left them. They're working two jobs as it is. Their mother helps to watch the kids and it's not feasible for them to have another child. Then if she does, she probably will be at the breaking point such that she can't actually continue to support those children. So then they'll go into their foster care system. And so isn't it compassionate for a her to just support abortion and murder the youngest sibling in that family before they're born in order to help improve quality of life for those already born. So in short, they conflate protection of life in the womb with quality of life outside the womb. Actually, they err more on quality of life outside the womb than protection of life in the womb. And if you say that quality of life outside the womb is more important than protection of life in the womb, your moral compass is broken and I don't trust you on any other moral issue. But this is a very popular argument for abortion, and it's pitched, like most abortion arguments are, as compassionate, right? I just care so much about the people already born that I'll defend tearing the limbs off of the youngest sibling in the family in order to protect the quality of life of those already born. Of course, the way that the pro-lifer would respond would be by saying, well, actually, actually, pro-choicer, if you want to approach this from a purely fiscal approach, it actually makes more sense to kill the oldest child because they have more cost of living. They might have to be, they're eating more. They're growing faster. They might have to have tuition if you want to send them to a private school. You're probably saving up for their college. It actually makes more sense to kill the oldest, who's the most expensive at this point, and then grant life to the youngest sibling, the preborn child, if you really want to approach this from just an equity standpoint. So again, the very arguments they use to defend abortion, they don't use to defend killing toddlers. So what have they assumed about the unborn? That the unborn is somehow not fully human or deserving of the same rights that born people have, but they never prove it. So I call this the, the sort of the soft bigotry of abortion, which is to acknowledge that the unborn might have some value, but not enough to deserve the right to life, which you ironically do have because your mother didn't abort you. How convenient for you. This is why Ronald Reagan said, I've noticed everyone who's for abortion has already been born. And our pro-choice friends go, humana, 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 that's a stupid, pithy saying. No, it's actually very ironic. It's actually very ironic that you sanction the slaughter of children in a womb that you once came from. Hi there. Hi. Um, my name is Allison Arguello. Um, and thank you so much for being here and for speaking this message and just all of the things that you're saying are, I resonate with. Um, I am a nurse and um, awesome. I'm also a critical thinker and someone that likes to do a lot of independent research. So um, I don't support abortion in any stage, um, but I've been really struggling over the last like year or two to understand why, how we've gotten to a point in our country where we're even discussing partial birth abortion. And, and I really wanted to understand that for and myself. And infanticide. Right. Also that too. Um, and I, I just, I can't understand how anybody would go through with that. And so I've really done a lot of research on it. And I'd like you to, to see if you could speak to that. Um, my research has led me to some very disturbing medical um, things that are going on, which I don't I have discovered in speaking with a lot of my colleagues, they don't know this. Sure. Um, you mean so, CNN doesn't cover that? Uh, one of the things that, that I'm really concerned about, and I'd like to know as a Christian and um, 
an ethical healthcare provider, and also just what what is the church? What's what are the movements that you are involved in? What are we doing about this? Um, so specifically as it relates to vaccines and um, aborted fetal tissue that is going into a lot of biomedical treatments, stem cell stuff, um, it seems to me that uh, pharmaceutical companies are paying big bucks for that tissue and the later stages of these pregnancies, I don't know if women are getting paid. I'm not sure how that's working. I haven't been able to find too much information on that, but um, I do read every medication that I give, I read the label, I read the, the handout, I read the insert. Yeah. A lot of my doctors don't do that. They don't know. And, um, and I have like, I have stepped away from a lot of things that I, that I can't do anymore because I won't be part of it. But what, um, it seems like a lot of Christians and a lot of churches are not aware of that. And so I'm just curious, how do you speak to that? What do we do? How do we get that message out or what's being done now? Yeah. Good question. So, Vaccines are probably, yeah, one of the fields in which there's the most ignorance amongst Christians. Um, I'm not an anti-vaxxer, so I'm not like against every single vaccine. If you are an anti-vaxxer, I actually have a lot of respect for your position. There's some really sketch stuff that goes on when you study it. There's a lot of financial incentives behind this, obviously. Um, so, you know, don't, you know, don't worry. Don't come up to me afterwards and be like, you need to become an anti-vaxxer. I, I, I get some of the wariness. Um, it, it, some of that was risks that my wife and I were willing to take for some of them. But we never do all of them with our children. We never do. We've had a baby. She's now four and a half months old. And they tried to give us the, like, uh, the STD one or something. I'm like, she's an infant, you sicko. Like, what do you think we're doing at home? Like, so so we're, I'm very much sort of like a moderate when it comes to vaccines. Uh, with our son, we staggered them, and we didn't do all of them, I don't think so. Um, but most people don't understand sort of the history of vaccines. And it's a pretty grisly history if you look into it. Um, so the, the COVID vaccine, so technically it doesn't even meet the definition of a vaccine from the CDC's own definition with the mRNA. But the COVID vaccine was developed through testing on little dead baby parts, what, through, through fetal tissue, they call it. That's just, that's just little baby parts from abortion. Uh, it was, it, the vaccine was tested with those means. Um, and you can trace that back to these babies that were killed in the 70s, whose um, cell lines have continued to be developed um, to create vaccines for the born to improve our own lives, right? And so there's two perspectives on this within the pro-life movement. One perspective says that any complicity with an act that was founded in immoral evil means is something you can't have anything to do with. The other position says the further away you are from the initial act of evil, the less culpable you are in participating in it. So some pro-lifers will make the argument that if there is a significant public health benefit in Americans getting vaccinated for any disease, it doesn't have to be COVID, for any disease, um, but that vaccine has a fetal cell line from an aborted baby in the 70s, you're not morally culpable and you're not sinning and participating in that because you didn't cause that to happen. You would have developed this differently if you were in a position of leadership, but now you just want to protect your community, your city, and your family. Um, but if you do take the vaccine that was founded in evil abort aborticide means you should continue to work to demand ethical research of the people developing the vaccines okay so those are kind of the two perspectives within the pro-life movement i have respect for both of them but i lean more on not wanting to have anything to do with vaccines that were founded from dead murdered aborted children that's that's more in the camp that i am in now a lot of people don't understand the 
the, I haven't heard the recent breaking news from the federal government's involvement in purchasing dead babies from abortions to create vaccines. The Federalist broke an article last week. My most recent podcast episode on my podcast called Unaborted with Seth Gruber is called You Must Die So I Can Live. You can listen to that, and I went through all of the recent news about, about this. But the Federalist broke an article, for, actually from a summit grad. If you don't know what Summit Ministries is, check them out. They're in Manitou Springs, Colorado, and they create Christians to engage in the public square. And this article uh, broke the news that Judicial Watch exposed uh, through like a 700-page report that the FDA, which is housed in the HHS, so it's a federal uh, it's a institution, has been buying dead aborted babies from like 2008 through 2012 from Advanced Bioscience Resources, ABR, which is in Northern California. If Advanced Bioscience Resources rings a bell, it's because that was the same um, procurer of fetal tissue that David Delighton and Sandra Merritt exposed from the Center for Medical Progress when they did covert undercover journalism, exposing high-ranking Planned Parenthood senior executives admitting over salad lunches that they haggle over the price of dead baby body parts to sell to interested third parties who then sell those to individuals who create vaccines by tinkering around with the bodies of dead aborted babies. The FDA has been doing this for years. And they have exposed the emails between the FDA and Advanced Bioscience Resources in Northern California as they haggle over the price and as they complain that they couldn't identify the gender of the child because the child was too mutilated from the dilation and evacuation abortion, which is a dismemberment abortion, so they couldn't identify the genitalia to know the gender, which helps them in their scientific experimentation. And they use these dead aborted baby parts to um, insert the flesh of these children subcutaneously on rats and mice to test vaccines and for um, other biological scientific experimentation. They were even complaining to Planned Parenthood, or, one, or to FDA was complaining to Advanced Bioscience Resources that some of the tissue was unusable. And it was unusable because they killed the baby through digoxin before they extracted the dead child. Digoxin is a chemical you insert into the baby that causes it to have a heart attack before it's born, but then those chemicals spoil the tissue meaning the skin of the child, so it can't be used effectively for scientific experimentation. So what does this mean? It means that if they don't kill the baby in the womb through digoxin first, it means one of two things, one of three things. They're either performing partial birth abortions, to go back to your first comment, which is illegal now at a federal level, or they're, per, they're um, inducing labor with misoprostol um, and uh, delivering a, uh, a live child, um, or they're doing a dismemberment abortion. So they're cutting up the child between 20 and 24 weeks, at which point it could probably be born alive and survive in a neonatal um, And then they're rearranging the parts and trying to keep it as intact as possible because they can get more bang for their buck if the child is more intact. All of these emails exposed by Judicial Watch last week, a week or a week and a half ago. Um, furthermore, scientists are now pushing to remove the unspoken 14-day limit on conceiving children artificially outside the womb because they want to extend how long they keep children alive conceived artificially outside the womb in order to tink around with gene modification. Scientists very recently are now creating human-monkey hybrid hybrids in order to develop them and harvest their organs. 
Okay, all three of those news pieces broke within the last week. Additionally, the Biden administration just overturned the Trump restriction on fetal tissue research and the tax funding fetal tissue research. What does all this mean? We want to be gods. Make no mistake, secular progressivism is not a rival politics. It is a rival religion. So when woke pastors say, I can't speak against politics. Well, can you speak against false religion? Can you do that? Something that scripture calls you to do? Secular progressivism believes that they are entitled to what every God is entitled to, which is what? Eternal life. So if we can sacrifice human beings in order to eke out a few more years on this life and perfect ourselves, then so be it. We will sacrifice babies in the pursuit of eternal life. It's very interesting. Human sacrifice has always been an element of pagan cultures because they reject the sacrifice of the eternal God who entered human history in a womb to redeem mankind from their sins. They don't realize that eternal life has already been procured for them through the sacrifice of the lamb slaughtered before the foundations of the earth on their behalf. But because eternity is written on the heart of man as scripture sacrifice human beings in the pursuit of what has already been guaranteed on our behalf, eternal life. Pagan cultures sacrificed human beings and children to pagan deities because they believed they would receive blessing in return. They would sacrifice children to the crop gods and the war gods and the weather gods. And now we're told by secular progressives that we have to kill babies to curb overpopulation, which leads to climate change. So, we murder babies in order to get a blessing in return and eke out a few more years on this life. In short, when Christianity is removed from a, a culture, we go right back to demon worship. We go right back to worshiping pagan gods in order to get a blessing for ourselves and procure what we believe to be human flourishing, which in the religion of secular progressivism is eternal life. Human sacrifice is a replacement for the eternal life already procured for us. So what does all of this mean? All of these individuals are doing this because they have a God-shaped hole in their heart and they're trying to procure through pagan secular means what was already procured for them on the cross. And that's something that we as Christians ought to point out by saying what you're seeking has already been provided for you. And so woke pastors need to recognize that they're not abdicating, they're not refusing to engage in a political battle, they're refusing to engage in spiritual warfare against a rival religion that has religious answers to religious questions at the heart of man and woman. Um, but this is going to continue, and this is just the progressive utopian vision of the culture of death, which says, some people can die so I can live. You die so I can live. Abortion says, you must die so I can live. Christ says, I must die so you can live. And my blood is shed for you, so you don't have to shed blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's a message that every pastor and Christian ought to be able to preach in the public square. Thank you. We're going to do two more questions because I know Seth can go all night. I know some of you want to go all night. Seth, where are you speaking tomorrow? We're not, we're not uh, in town. I'm preaching tomorrow morning, I think 10 a.m. at Calvary Oro Valley. Cal Calvary Oro Valley. So it's Only that? 10 minutes away, right? Are you doing something in the evening tomorrow? Today? No, just the morning one. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Two more questions because I have to preach in the morning, and I'm the microphone holder. <laughs> yes, Everly. Oh, no, yeah. going to go last. <laughs> I love Everly. I love her. She's going last. Sorry, Everly. Um, so in this cultural moment, Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, um, a lot of millennials, I'm, I'm a millennial, um, are focused on Black Lives Matter, on social justice, and I won't argue over terms, 
abortion's a justice issue, but when it's brought up in certain circles, it's kind of shouted down to say that's an issue, but that's a later issue. Yep. How would you suggest from a marketing or messaging standpoint, we speak to that particular audience yeah. who cares, yeah. um, it thinks it's compassionate to talk about this, yeah. but this is a sideline for now. Yeah, I, 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 I attended Reality Church in Santa Barbara when I was going there. Uh, this was Britt Merrick's church, who's the son of Al Merrick, Al Merrick Surfboards, Channel Island Surfboards, biggest surfboard company in the world. Um, big church in Carpinteria, California, just south of Santa Barbara. And I had a lot of respect for that church and the pastors there, but nearly all of the pastors there now have said things like this. Seth, come on, stop making everything about abortion. Don't tell me that if I say Black Lives Matter, I have to talk about abortion. It, every movement is entitled to its outrage. Maybe you've heard statements like that. So it's okay to just focus and hone in on one injustice and movement at a time and then focus on other ones at another time. And many woke pastors preached you know, critical race theory BS from their pulpits during this, uh, this Black Lives Matter riots and burning and, and, and domestic terrorism. And they said, we're pro-life too, but right now, unarmed black lives are being murdered, except the Washington Post said that 12 unarmed black men were killed by police officers in 2019, half of which who were still attacking the cops, they just weren't doing so with a firearm, meaning that, that uh, six unarmed black men were shot by police officers in 2019 and there was no justification for it. Meanwhile, abortion kills 400,000 unarmed black lives in the womb every year, and Planned Parenthood kills more unarmed black lives in two weeks than the KKK lynched in a century. And that's not just like a, a, a dope statistic that I do. That's accurate, accurate statistic. Planned Parenthood alone, I'm not saying the abortion industry, I'm saying just that organization, Planned Parenthood, kills more unarmed black lives in the womb every 14 days than the KKK lynched in 100 years. And I... It irks me to no end when pastors say that I can't address abortion right now because right now, unarmed black lives that are born are being targeted. Yeah, but the organization that's leading the charge against protecting unarmed black lives teams up with Planned Parenthood to launch a political action training organization in 2019 called Supermajority. Yes, Cecile Richards, the former president of Planned Parenthood, a white racist if there ever was one, teamed up with Alicia Garza, the co-founder of Black Lives Matter. Those two women together launched an organization called Supermajority with the express goal of training up two million young women to be political abortion activists leading up to the 2020 election. You have the greatest danger to black lives teaming up with an organization called Black Lives Matter. And we were supposed to condone that from our pulpits and say, we'll talk about abortion at another time? Are you freaking kidding me? That's deeply offensive to God who creates every human being in his image and in his likeness. Can you imagine if Black Lives Matter started calling for the, or I'm sorry, can you imagine if Planned Parenthood started calling for the re-legalization of lynchings in America? Do you think Black Lives Matter would team up with them? No, of course not. But if you murder black lives in the womb, then that's just social justice. Let me make something clear. If you put any word in front of the word justice, you don't know what justice is. Justice is an objective thing that exists in reality. It's defined by God. And if you have to, if you have to qualify it with any word in front of it, you don't understand what justice is. And these people don't. And, and that's why they say that we can put abortion to the side in the meantime while we talk about the six unarmed black men killed unjustifiably by police officers in 2019, all of whom were convicted and met with the full force of the law. So how do we talk to pastors or individuals and millennials who have gone woke on us and, and are espousing these ideas? I think, uh, you might not like this answer, I think we need to treat them as heretics. 
oh, Seth, you can't say that. You can't judge the heart of people. You don't know if they're truly saved or not. Really, then why did Dietrich Bonhoeffer launch something called the Confessing Church? Eberhard Bethke, Martin Niemöller, Dietrich Bonhoeffer launched the Confessing Church in the middle of a holocaust. Hmm, why did they call themselves a Confessing Church, brothers and sisters? In order to create a line of demarcation, between the German church, who had been co-opted by the Nazi government and was literally preaching Nazi bigotry and anti-Semitism from the pulpit, but with the veneer of Christianity, between that church and the confessing church. Why? Because Bonhoeffer's contention was that we're confessing the real Christ. Confessing church, meaning we're the only church confessing the real gospel. And if you say you're a Christian, but you say that it should remain legal to murder six million Jews because you're not political, then I don't know what God you're a witness for. And you might have created a God in your own image because the prenatal God who has existed before all time would never condone the murder of innocent human beings. And most of these woke pastors who said, I am pro-life, Seth, but Black Lives Matter outside of the womb too, and that's the outrage right now. That's the focus. The ones who said that also disproportionately vote for Democrats because they said social justice matters more. That's what we have to do. We have to repent for our white racism, even though I'm not racist and I've never acted in a racially bigoted way, but, you know, I participate in systems of oppression. So, therefore, vote for Democrats who are going to get rid of systems of oppression. But don't worry. I am pro-life. No, you're not because you cannot tell your neighbor you love them, but that it also should be legal to kill them. That's not how any of this works. And when you say you're pro-life, you say you love your unborn neighbor. But if you vote for people who say it's legal to kill your unborn neighbors, then what you're really saying is it's okay to kill neighbors that you say you love. That's not what pro-life people do. So I think we have to take the Bonhoeffer approach and start treating this type of heresy as heresy and saying it has no place in the Church of Christ. And historians, both Christian and pagan, who write about the time of the Holocaust, speak about those German churches as, guess what word? Heretics. Why? Because we have moral clarity today. Of course. That's how powerful bigotry is, right? This is what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Chronological snobbery. Because we're more chronologically advanced in the timeline of human history, and we find ourselves in 2021, and we look at the 1940s, and we go, oh my gosh, how could those Christians who say they loved God have condoned the Holocaust or been silent on it? What was wrong with them? That's how powerful bigotry is. Bigotry blinds you to what should otherwise be obvious truths about human nature. It's been said that political correctness corrupts one's ability to think clearly about reality. And when political correctness says murdering children in a womb is reproductive justice and the church goes along with it, they are complicit because they are condoning the murder of God's children in a womb that he is currently knitting together. And I think we need to call that position heresy and start purifying the bride of Christ by saying there are some things that are non-negotiables. We can debate the gifts. We can debate women in leadership. We can do all that without condemning one another into utter darkness, totally. But there are some things that are non-negotiables. And murdering image bearers of God because social justice matters more than real justice should be labeled a heresy. We should take the Bonhoeffer approach and say, unless you repent, you have created a Christ in your own image, and it's not the God who entered human history in a womb. All right, last question. Yes, I've been in the <clears throat> pregnancy ministry for 35 years, and I love what I'm doing. I'm also a nurse. And um, one thing that a lot of people aren't probably aware of is where they're using in vitro fertilization, and they're implanting several fertilized eggs in the uterus. 
That's and right. they only want one baby, and so the rest have to be removed. And Selective that's, reduction. That's, that's abortion, right. Yep. And I want you to talk on that a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Thanks. So I, I meet Christians all the time who say, look at my babies I have from IVF. I'm super pro-life. And I go, ooh, I don't think you know what in vitro fertilization is. And so in vitro fertilization has actually become widely accepted in many Christian circles. And you guys probably have friends. You probably have some friend out there um, who either did IVF or knows someone who did IVF. Maybe someone in this room did IVF. I'm not here to condemn you tonight. I am here to bring moral clarity so you understand what is involved in IVF, okay? In vitro fertilization involves artificially conceiving children outside the womb, and you create multiple ones because not all of them will implant in the woman's uterus. So you create, so firstly it's wrong because you're creating excess human beings with the foreknowledge that some of them will be sacrificed on the altar of the woman's reproductive dreams. The second reason it's wrong is what happens if too many implant? What if mom wants two and they insert, you know, they release seven or eight in her and five take? Well, now you do something called selective reduction. That's a euphemism for feticide. That's a euphemism for abortion. You just kill the other children, you sacrifice them, so that you can get that perfect number that you wanted. This is how IVF happens. So th 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 there's two, those are the two reasons why it's wrong. Now, I've had some Christian families tell me, but yeah, but look, look at Sally and Timmy. Like, look at them, Seth. Like, how could you say that they're sin? I'm like, I'm not saying that. Of course, they're beautiful and they're image bearers of God. But that doesn't mean that the way that you brought about their genesis was moral, right? It's like saying if you're sleeping around, committing adultery, right? Or creating children outside of marriage and having babies and then saying, but, but premarital, premarital sex, it wasn't wrong because look at Timmy now. Now he's born and he's here. It's like, yes, praise God he's here. But that doesn't mean that you weren't sinning when you were having premarital sex. It's the same thing. Just because these children are here now, praise God, it doesn't mean that you weren't sinning when you brought about their creation, sacrificed some of their siblings who didn't take, or murdered some of their siblings because too many took. So that's how IVF works, and we need to understand that. I'll close with this for you guys before we leave. Um, I believe that at the end of the day, the role of the Christian in the church on the issue of abortion is to love our unborn neighbors. Christ summarizes all the law and the prophets to hang on to. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Is the unborn our neighbor? Well, if they're a human, they're a neighbor. Scripture makes it very clear that every human being is our neighbor. And that's what made the question of the lawyer in the parable of the Good Samaritan so offensive. Remember? What does he ask Christ? What must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he says, he nails it, right? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Boom, nails it. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. By the way, it's really nice when God tells you your theology is correct, right? You have answered correctly. You got it, dude. You have orthodoxy. But did he have orthopraxy? Was he practicing his faith? No. In order to justify himself, what does he ask Jesus? And who is my neighbor? The reason I say that story is because there is no other class of human beings alive today to whom the question is more frequently directed, are they really neighbors, than the pre-born image bearers in our midst. And that question and that assumption, are they really neighbors, is often coming from American pulpits, from woke pastors who insist that the unborn child doesn't have enough value to warrant political protection. So what is the role of the church? To love our neighbors. How do you love a neighbor that it's legal to kill? The unborn is the only class of neighbors that is legal to kill, right? So if it was legal to kill pro-lifers, while I would appreciate you trying to love my parents, the first way I would love for you to love me is to pass laws to make it illegal to kill me. I would really like to not be killed. 
the first and most important way for us to love our preborn neighbors is to make it illegal to kill them. That means participating in the political sphere. But listen, we don't wait for the politics to save children. We don't wait for favorable legislation to save children. We engage outside the doors of death now while we still have First Amendment rights to participate in the public square and speak life and plead with their parents to choose life and offer to raise their child for them, pay for the delivery, throw them a baby shower, or adopt their baby. We do not wait for politics to save children. This is why I team up with the organization Love Life out of Charlotte, North Carolina, whose goal is to get a Christian witness rallied outside every abortion clinic in the country. Every day they perform abortions, offering the hope of the gospel and the help of the local church. Two-thirds of the abortion clinics in America are void of a consistent Christian witness. So like the Levite and the priest, we walk by on the other side of the road where we know bleeding victims are created, but we don't contend to save their lives because we're too busy and we're on our way to do more spiritual things, just like the Levite and the priest were, who were pastors, who were supposed to be preaching the Bible, but were too busy to save a bleeding victim. Unlike the Good Samaritan, we know where these bleeding victims are being created. We have the addresses of the clinics where they're scheduled to die. There is only one place, brothers and sisters, where we can say this statement. We know right there that there are innocent human beings scheduled to die this week. Abortion centers are the only place that you can say that sentence. And we allow it in our communities and in our state and in our country because we're afraid of getting uncomfortable. So what is the role of the Christian? At the very least, it's the same as the Good Samaritan, to sacrifice our time, our energy, and our money to love bleeding victims scheduled to die. That means rallying people to vote for pro-life politicians. That means learning how to persuasively and graciously defend your pro-life views, to be an ambassador for the unborn. You can subscribe to my podcast, Unaborted with Seth Gruber. I just moved to two episodes a week, and you'll get equipped to defend life. Leave me a rating and review. It helps us reach more people. Thirdly, sign up as a sidewalk counselor. Get trained outside of these doors of death. You say, Seth, that's scary. That's difficult. Yeah, Christianity is difficult and uncomfortable. That's why when we're weak, he's strong. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God slips his hand into us as puppets and uses us to accomplish his purposes on this world. God could have ended abortion yesterday, but he doesn't because he waits for his people to move. 40 Days for Life has found that during their prayer campaigns, when abortion clinic workers leave the industry, they later tell 40 Days for Life, and this has happened multiple times, they tell them, hey Christians, now that I'm a Christian and I've left the abortion industry, I want you to know that during your prayer campaigns, we would see an upwards of a 75% no-show of abortion appointments on the days that you Christians were praying out there. 75% of children not killed because Christians were there because we showed up where God already is to contend for the life of the orphan doomed to die. Scripture tells us that pure and undefiled religion is to care for widows and orphans. Scripture says we should care for the orphan. Why? Because their life is endangered because their parents are dead. So how much more should we care about the unborn whose life is endangered because his parents want him dead? In fact, Christ says that if you don't care for the orphan in the window, your prayers are going to So you wonder why there's a crisis of evangelism, why there's a crisis of the soul, why there's a crisis of the gospel in America? Because God is blocking the prayers of his church because pure and undefiled religion is to care for orphans and widows. So we show outside the doors of death. If you want help doing this, connect with ProLove. 
connect with Love Life. You can go to lovelife.org forward slash America, and they will equip you and train you to do this. We are starting Love Life chapters all around the country. We now have seven full-time Love Life missionaries in California with 13 more being trained, all out of Calvary chapels that I've preached at and that God is doing something amazing in these churches. It started at Jack Hibbs Church. Now it's moving to Northern California and it's sweeping through California. And our goal is to get 100 full-time Love Life missionaries in California by the end of 2022 and rally a Christian witness every day, seven days a week outside of abortion clinics where children are doomed to die. Those missionaries at Calvary Chapel Chino Hills have been outside of the Planned Parenthood in Pomona in South LA County or San Bernardino County every day since December. In November, that clinic was void of a Christian witness every day. Recently, they had to shut their doors on a Friday because they weren't getting enough traffic. Traffic means women and babies who were showing up to be abused by the abortion industry, who were accepting the help of the bride of Christ because we're there, because we showed up in obedience to Christ. And when we show up where God already is, guess what? Everything changes. Shocker, because we're nothing from dust we are into dust we tell we shall return. But God uses dust to accomplish amazing things in this earth because though we're dust, we're created in the image of God. That's the role of the church. So if you want to be trained up and equipped to do that, connect with me, connect with lovelife.org forward slash America, and we'll start that at your church. I'll leave you with this. I know we're super over time, but I want to send you out with this right here. An old man approached a pro-life singer by the name of Penny Lee one night. Penny Lee was this pro-life singer and pro-life activist from a couple decades ago. And this old man approached her after an event, and he told her this story. This is what he said. He said, I lived in Germany during the Nazi Holocaust. I considered myself a Christian. I attended church since I was a small boy, and we had heard the stories of what was happening to the Jews. But like most people today in this country, we tried to distance ourselves from the reality of what was really taking place. What could anyone do about it, right? A railroad track ran behind our small church, and each Sunday morning, we would hear the whistle from a distance, and then the clacking of the wheels moving over the track. We became disturbed when one Sunday, we noticed cries coming from the train as it passed by we grimly realized that the train was carrying Jews. They were like cattle packed in those cars. So week after week, the train whistle would blow, and we would dread to hear the sound of those old wheels because we knew that the Jews would begin to cry out to us as they passed our church. It was so terribly disturbing. We knew exactly at what time that whistle would blow. And so we decided that the only way to keep from becoming so disturbed by the cries was to start singing our hymns. By the time that train came rumbling past the churchyard, we were singing at the top of our voices. And if some of the screams reached our ears, we'd just sing a little louder until we could hear them no more. Years have passed by and no one talks about it much anymore but I still hear that train whistle in my sleep. I can still hear them crying out for help. God forgive all of us who called ourselves Christians yet did nothing to intervene. Brothers and sisters, for 48 years, the American church has been singing louder over the silent screams of God's precious image bearers. And the silence of the shepherds on the abortion of the lambs was so loud that it led Francis Schaeffer to say those words at every abortion clinic ought to have a sign out front that says, open with the permission of the church of Jesus Christ. I believe one day when we stand before God, we're going to give a personal account for what we to help end the genocide of baby image bearers. And I pray that you and I 
would say with William Wilberforce, let it not be said of me that I was silent when they needed me. Friends, the babies are waiting for us to intervene. God is waiting for his church to stand in the gap and the world is watching the church of Christ to see what our witness for the prenatal God will truly be. Will we engage or will we surrender? I pray that we will engage and in the meantime, I will see you on the battlefield. Now go out there and give them heaven. Thank you guys. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning in to that live Q&A episode from Catalina Foothills Church in Tucson, Arizona. Hope that was helpful for you. Reshare that with us, will you please? I know that we address a lot of issues that a lot of questions and concerns come up uh, within Christian circles and within pro-life individuals. And so hopefully that was helpful for you. I help us get this broad uh, reach to influence more people um, to engage in the battle for life at this propitious moment. Um, if you enjoyed this um, podcast, if you've been listening to this for a little while and you appreciate what we talk about and how we equip people to stand for life, uh, would you leave us a rating and review? It really helps us reach more people. And would you consider becoming a patron of the show? You can go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted and you'll see some really cool just uh perks and tears there and we'll be doing a pro-life book club here soon as well just for patrons if you want to get access to that uh, and that just helps us create better content more content improve our production quality um, be able to reach more people boost this stuff online bring on guests uh, cover the expenses um, as well as here soon moving to conversational content on the streets to put these ideas within a conversational format so you can really benefit from being able to replicate that with people in your life as well um, if you want to learn more and uh, engage with me online uh, follow me on social media head on over to sethgruber.com, sign up for my newsletter to see my speaking schedule, to hear me come speak live and local, or to book me for an event. My summer and fall schedule is already filling up, so if you want to take advantage to get me in a school, uh, church, youth group, or pregnancy center banquet, go to sethgruber.com. Thank you guys so much for staying tuned in. Uh, stay tuned for another excellent interview this week, and uh, thank you so much. Keep standing for life. We'll see you next week. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Unaborted. <laughs>